You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Continuing his series of interviews with central bankers, policymakers, and the economists who inform their views, Pedro da Costa sits down with Dr. Adam Posen, president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Together, they examine the state of the European Union, how this crisis is affecting globalization and emerging markets, and the lasting changes we can expect when we finally come out the other side. Welcome to the interview. This is Real Vision. I'm Pedro da Costa. It's my pleasure to welcome today Adam Posen. Adam is a former member of the Bank of England, and he's currently the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, where he was also my former boss, full disclosure. It's a real pleasure to have him today on the show because Adam is somebody I look to for guidance in times of crisis, and uh, this is certainly one of those times. So thank you so much for joining me, Adam. Thank you, Pedro. I'm excited to be part of this project of yours. Just starting off with uh, the the most important question at the moment, which is how are you doing? How's your family? How have you guys been coping with this stuff? And uh, how has this affected you personally? We've been fortunate. Um, I know you're looking after two young kids, you and your wife. Um, for us, we're, we don't have anyone in the nest with us. And both our my wife and my mother's are safe in their apartments. Uh, locked down. So we're okay. Uh, it's like this was true before COVID, but even more so now. You know, the world is a pretty scary place. A lot of bad things happen to a lot of bad people. Um, fortunate for those of us who can sort of sit tight and do our work and be okay. Absolutely. Especially when you look at the statistics of how many people just can't either can't afford to or whose work requires them to be, you know, yeah. in place. But I can only, I mean, I think of your how much you travel, it must have changed your, your day-to-day quite substantially. I Absolutely. And it's, it's changed everything. So I used to be on the road 35 40% of nights, um, more than half of that abroad. I stopped traveling basically last week of January and haven't left town except for one foolish trip to New York before I realized what was going on. Yeah. Um, but also just priorities have changed. My biggest priority now, running a small th- nonprofit is to make sure that I can pay, uh, we can pay for all staff, including meeting staff, operation staff, the publication staff you used to work with, as well as researchers. Um, you know, we can, we're fortunate, but it, it's an issue. And then, of course, our whole workload changes to try to be useful in the face of this crisis. Yeah, I know it's pretty staggering. Can, you, can we just start off by talking about U.S. unemployment for a second? Because we try you know, we've had this these four weeks of jobless claims now that, that amount to, I think, 22 million people yeah. filing for claims. And that's probably, you know, as you know, an underestimate because of, you know, uh, kind of bottleneck issues and people who don't know they, they, they need it or are, uh, are eligible, I should say. Can you put that 22 million number in context over just the course of a month? I mean, in context, there is nothing like it. Um, we have never seen this rapid a jump in unemployment as long as we have data. And the history of labor market data in the U.S. is actually about the most reliable data we've got and goes back a long way. So even in the Great Depression, by the time we got up to 25 plus percent measured unemployment, it took a couple of years. Um, similarly, in 2008, 2009, we got nowhere close to this. And this happened in the span of obviously several weeks. Um, it is worth noting context that without making light of the suffering, the hope is, and it is a reasonable hope, it's by no means for sure, but it's a reasonable hope that within two months from now, many of the people currently unemployed will be back at work in their previous positions or something similar. Um, But, you know, the amount of human disruption and then the probably... 10, 12, 14% unemployment that will remain even two, per, two months from now is horrible. So, yeah, I, the thing I love about this forum, Adam, is we get to take a step back and really just delve it deep into questions and, and 
you know, the Peterson Institute is the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So I really would love to take a tour around the world with you and look at this issue from a global perspective, because it, it really is one. I, I, you know, I tell my, my friends and colleagues, there was ever a time where we were like, for better or worse, united. Uh, this is this is it. It could be for better. It, it could be for better. It could be for better, exactly. And so that's exactly my question to you. So the Peterson Institute is, you know, is at the forefront of promoting global integration, free trade, openness, international cooperation. Uh, that that trend had been under threat before, uh, and it's still under threat perhaps more severely now. Uh, of course, this crisis engenders some need for cooperation, but there's also some tension. Can you talk about how you see those two things playing out? I think, I think we have to start by explaining just briefly why people at Peterson and elsewhere are, are committed to making globalization work and not reversing it. I mean, you see that right now. As my colleague Chad Bown has published a series of pieces, uh, they're getting a lot of play deservedly. You can't disentangle yourself from global supply chains in order to get everything you need, whether it's food or medical supplies. I mean, people say, oh, we went too far. You know, we shouldn't be getting this stuff from China or wherever. But the fact is we're getting stuff from Canada. We're getting stuff from Mexico, we're getting stuff from the Netherlands, from England. And so every time that President Trump or someone of either party who decides they want to cut us off from the world, they are making us more vulnerable and those unemployed people, the poor people in the U.S. are the first to suffer because you're reducing supplies, you're raising prices, and what happens is that means it just goes even more to the rich people, these medical supplies and services. Same is true of food. Um, same is true of all these basic things. You cannot, it's not just a question of modernization or cost-cutting or excessive globalization. For centuries, going back to the Roman Empire, you need lower income people to come pick your crops because higher income people won't do that work. And then the food rots in the fields. And those people need to be able to cross borders in order to make their living. So you cannot get away from this. And, and this is even more true in the pandemic, as you're talking about, Pedro, because you, you can't get away from the disease. You know, we'd like to say, OK, we cut off travel. And if we had cut off travel by this date from Europe or this date from China, you know, we would then be safe. But, you know, go back to the great flu of 1918 to 1920. There were tiny islands in the Pacific that after a few months got infected with the flu. There was literally no place on earth that didn't have the flu. And that was in the aftermath of World War I with no commercial air travel, no internet, uh, no globalization of the sort we know now. So the reality, the hard-headed reality is not- Turns out to have affected my, my, my great-grandfather oh, really? in, in, in Rio de Janeiro in 1918. Turns out he died of the Spanish flu. We came oh, to the Yeah, and, 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 and so it's just, it's not like there was huge international tourism and travel back and forth from Rio or Sao Paulo in, in 1918. I mean, so, you, the, the rational realist thing is to think about how to make these international integration work. Um, but you're absolutely right. Things are going backwards. Chad and your colleagues have pointed out in that context how actually some of the, the trade war disruptions that were happening ahead of this crisis have made it more difficult for, yeah. for everyone, but also for the United States to get the goods and, and product, medical equipment even that we need, yeah. right? No, absolutely. And, and, and this is happening in Europe as well. I mean, it's not just the U.S., it's other countries. Europe put on this export ban on their medical supplies that they were producing, and it backfired on them. I mean, even rich countries, even large rich economies like the U.S. or EU, take it as a whole, can't fully self-supply. It's just not possible. Moreover, I mean, the thing, there's a lot to talk about the globalization issue, but the biggest thing where globalization has not delivered is not for the people of the rich world, it's not for the people of China, it's for the people of Africa, Latin America, South Asia. Even there we've delivered, but we haven't delivered them all the way. So in other words, the, the bottom line is there's gonna be horrible death and disruption in developing countries, it's already started. There's been a huge outflow of capital from those countries, the IMF, World Bank, and others are trying to get some of the money back in so that those people are not deprived of everything they need. 
and they don't incur horrible debts they shouldn't have to. But that is the real divide in the world right now. It, everybody's got the disease, but it's how much you suffer, how resilient your society is. How worried are you about the emerging world, as it's, as it's called, uh, in terms of the crisis hitting, you know, health infrastructures that are even less? I mean, we're seeing just how strained rich countries are in the face of this virus. How do you see this playing out in the emerging world? And can you talk a little bit about the things that you and others have argued the G20 can do to, you know, to help? Thank you for that. The, the picture is very grim. Um, the one bit of good news is we're seeing increasing evidence that the disease, statistically speaking, is much less deadly, much more contagious and much less deadly than we first thought. So like the news that just came out about the study, a small random sample of pregnant women being admitted for delivery in New York, and it turns out some vast share of them are infected and very few of them are symptomatic. And there's various other data points coming in like that. And so that's the one bit of good news. And that's not about economics. That's about the fundamental biology. So that potentially the death rate is going to be much lower once you count all the people who got sick. It's still going to be horrible. Other than that, the public health picture in the developing world, and I say developing world where the emerging isn't about PC, it's because there are certain developing countries like your friends in Brazil, um, a few others that are big enough and sort of on the right side of the divide that they can get away with running fiscal policy. They already have something of a welfare state. Our mutual friend, my colleague, Monica Bolt-Dabola, of course, has been pushing for universal basic income in this emergency in Brazil, and Brazil can afford to do something like that. But then you've got a host of countries in Central America and South Asia and in Africa that can't do that. So you get caught in not only is the healthcare system overtaxed, but you have people living mostly in very tight conditions, bad living conditions, not great sanitation, huge population density in and around urban areas. You have lockdowns, as we've seen very visibly in India, which may or may not be the right thing to do in this context. That's a very real question, but which clearly don't protect the, the urban poor and people in slums. And unemployment is much more meaningful for the informal sector people in these countries. You, know, it's, you saw the millions of people in Mumbai and Bombay, just to pick an example, who had to go back to their home villages because they had no way of making a living. It was hand-to-mouth cash work to make a living day to day. And when you have a lockdown, maybe the middle-income enough people lock down, but then they stop interacting with all those poor people. You have to go the notion of stocking up for two weeks of food is, is not feasible yeah. for, for millions and millions of human beings, on yeah. this planet, including in this country, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that is part of the reason we keep hammering on this idea of making globalization work, because as, as much as people talk about inequality and problems of globalization, if you're closed and, and you're not taking advantage of the diversification and the multiple sources of supply and the checks on government and the flows of people and information for health purposes, all these things, it's the poor and vulnerable who get hit worst in the U.S. as well as in the poor world. You had said, I don't want to be so negative because there are things we can do that will make a material difference. You had said uh, work we've done on the G20. Um, Maury Wobsfeld and I edited a short piece, which I hope people will read. It's very quick, um, but about practical steps to make life better in the world. And, and the key point is, going back to where you started, Pedro, this is about collective action. So usually people are used to economists thinking in terms of trade-offs. Well, if we have more of this, we have less of that. Or international relations, not as much as Donald Trump makes it out to be, but it's often thought to be zero-sum. If I'm gaining, China's losing and vice versa. There are case situations in international economics where it's what we call collective action problem, where it's just there's no competition. If people join together and get past this trust, you could actually get things for everybody that you couldn't get otherwise. And it, it, it's, and so it's, it's not privileging one country versus another. It's not taking away from one to another. And those are the kinds of things we emphasize. So those are things like swap lines that give temporary liquidity and dollars to strained financial systems in emerging markets and developing countries. Uh, emergency aid from the World Bank and the IMF is very cheap 
but very important support for uh, how to distribute vaccines, how to distribute antivirals when we have them, you know, whether it's refrigeration or safe distribution networks or administration instructions. Restoring freer trade in medical supplies and food so that the, the people don't hoard in the rich world. And we have a better sense transparently, as Chad and others have argued, about where the supplies are and where the bottlenecks are. Leaning against dollar appreciation, which sounds like a selfish US thing, but actually in the current context, when all the world's money almost is flying into the US and a few other safe havens like Switzerland and Norway, um, the dollar goes up a lot. And for poor countries who need to buy food, medicine, technology, pay debts in dollars, that makes it even worse. And when you've got energy prices cratering, it's good for most people. But of course, there are a bunch of countries who export energy and export copper, and nobody's building with copper at the moment. So there's room for us to all lean against excessive dollar appreciation. And that, again, doesn't cost very much money at all, probably get most of it back, and it helps everybody. So these are the kinds of things we should be talking about at the international level. So beyond the, um, the health cooperation and actual you know, medical uh, know-how and supplies getting to the places where they need, I imagine that there's a sort of preventing a deeper financial crisis component to this as well. I mean, these, there's a lot of smaller or larger but less, less developed African economies and Asian economies that issued a lot of bonds in, in, in so-called good times. And I, I would imagine that having financial crises in, in one or more of those countries would aggravate a, a pandemic by definition. You're absolutely right. And, and I mean, we, we have to appreciate the scale, but also the nature of what's happening right now. So even during 2008, 2009, global financial crisis, Asian financial crisis 20 plus years ago, you have huge flows of money out of these countries into, again, the safe havens, the rich countries. And that puts increases the, the amount of debt in real terms that these countries have to pay and decreases usually the amount of money they have. And also because it's a recession, usually increases the amount, whatever degree they have a welfare state and public spending, increases the demands on it. So now take each of those factors and amp them up for the pandemic. More money's going out. So we had more money leave the developing world in the last two months than left the developing world in the entire 2008-2010 crisis. More of a recession because you've, you've talked about the horrible unemployment numbers here in the US, even if it's not sustained, God willing. It's an enormous contractionary shock. And then more demand for public spending and public services for global health pandemic, even more than just trying to keep the poor going. So this is an enormous burden on the developing world. Over 90 countries have applied for emergency loans or assistance at the IMF and the World Bank simultaneously. In the worst crises, we've usually seen 20 at most. So there's a huge challenge on how to do this. Now, there's one piece of good news to that which is the rich world knows that none of this is those countries' fault, right? <laughs> Wherever the disease started, it wasn't because some African government ran too much debt or some uh, South Asian government was too loose with their fiscal spending. That's not what's going on here. This is, this is something they're totally not their fault, which suddenly changes their whole debt. And so the big emphasis this week around the G20 and the IMF meetings, IMF World Bank meetings, is to try to get some form of the same kind of rollover of debt, not building up new debt, not requiring current payments that we're trying to do for small business in the U.S. It's the same thing, trying to do that for governments and some, some entities in the developing world. And there's some real progress, to be fair. I mean, there's some genuine progress, the IMF and the World Bank and the G20, have tried, but there are issues, as you've reported on and written about in the past, about these so-called vulture funds and various holdout investors who, this is the worst part of it. If, if you say the official sector says, we're not going to ask you to make interest payments now um, to loans coming from us, 
but then maybe the private people still keep going. You know, think of it as the uh, the government says, okay, you can postpone your taxes till July 15th in the U.S. for a household, but the local loan shark says you still got to pay me. So is there a risk? Who holds the bag on the northern side? Is there a risk to uh, sort of uh, U.S. European financial systems from the lending that's been done in the emerging world? I think the it's a good good question to ask, and certainly in past crises, going back to the Latin crisis of the 80s, which you're all too familiar with, there has been this issue of Western banks overextending, getting themselves into trouble, which has had sometimes the beneficial side effect of encouraging the Americans and the Europeans to actually put more money into rescuing the poor countries as a way of rescuing their banks. Um, right now, I think that's actually much less of an issue that's been in past crises. A lot of the money that went into the developing world was in more liquid form on securities investment funds or investors who are not banks, hedge funds of various kinds. And the banks themselves in the U.S. and Europe are genuinely better provisioned and better capitalized than they were in, say, 2008. Now, I know your first two episodes were with two people I admire, Sheila Baer and Tom Honig, and I'm sure you talked about the questions of you know, how much has the supervision of banks really improved? How much has that been rolled back over the last couple of years with changes at the Fed? And, and that's a legitimate thing. But I think we have to recognize the reality as a forecaster that the U.S. financial system, the European financial system, even if it's not ideal, are in much better shape to weather this than, than they would have been in the past. Well, certainly. And, uh, and in the, I want to actually, before we get to the European context, I want to ask you about China because it's, it straddles the developing, right. uh, developed world. Uh, you know, it's kind of the bridge. And it's also, of course, the, 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 the country where the crisis started. So it perhaps offers a window into our future. How big an economic hit are you guys projecting China has taken and will take from, uh, from this pandemic? And uh, now that you see some reopening happening, you know, what are you hearing from your contacts out there? Because it doesn't, it's not like you kind of sound the all clear and everybody goes back to business as usual, right? Oh, absolutely. And and it's really interesting to think about China, which you rightly characterized my book, Pedro, excuse me, as being part uh, developing country, part rich big country. And it is both. Um, so my colleague, Nick Lardy at Peterson, who's probably the best U.S. analyst of the Chinese economy, at least I certainly think so. He is a little bit out there in, in believing that the Chinese recession is less bad than many people thought, and the recovery is a little stronger than people thought. And, and this is, again, this is not to say it's not terrible, it's just some of the numbers he uses exaggerated. And so the, the way to think about it is China probably grew on Nick's numbers, you know, something 1% roughly in the, in the last three months. And, you know, a good rule of thumb for all your listeners is rich countries, U.S., Europe, Japan, a recession is when you go below zero. Developing countries, because of population growth and because of the catch-up, a recession is when you go below 3%. I mean, just rough order of magnitude. So this was definitely a recession, but it's not the kind of contraction some people are seeing in the data. And Nick points to things like, the industrial data, the pickup in energy use, the pickup in pollution, frankly. Yeah. But also, as he and another colleague of ours, Mark Trezempa, talk about, you can see, you know, going back to the issue of migrant workers, China has hundreds of millions of migrant workers within China who move from the provinces, as they're called, to the coast, to the big cities, to where the jobs are. And we have seen, and again, like in India, you know, they, they were basically sent home when the economy went to lockdown. Well, as best we can tell, 80, 90% of those migrants have moved back to where their jobs are. And they're not as desperate as the poor Indian people in the informal yeah. sector are, but they certainly would not move if there were not jobs reopening. So we see it as potentially, I've referred to this for a number of the rich countries, and in this case, China is like a rich country. I, I think of it as having a check mark, maybe a reverse check mark recovery down incredibly quickly, back up at less than half the slope you came down, but definitely positive slope. Now, two cautions to the somewhat rosy picture on China. 
First, as many people worry about rightly, you do expect to have intermittent local lockdowns. So we're already seeing that in one county, in one city in China. Um, even if you've got the disease largely under control, and even if people do get immunity once they've survived the disease, at least for a while, you're just inherently going to have intermittent lockdowns and, and interruptions. The question is how you manage it. Do you stop it before it gets big? Um, the second is retail and hospitality in China, as far as we can tell, have not come all the way back. And this goes to issues, like you said, lessons for the rest of us. So the intermittent lockdowns question and how you manage that disruption while keeping most of the economy reopen is one issue. Another is just how much permanently do face-to-face -face retail and the associated real estate with that, restaurants, theaters, entertainment, tourism, how much are, is there a permanent or at least persistent shift of people's tastes? Do they change? Nick also points out, Nick Lardy also points out and reminds us in a blog he just put out, that there is a lot of chatter about how dependent China is on exports. China actually is in the fortunate position like the US of being so large and diverse that even though it needs critical supplies as we spoke about, overall in terms of economic growth, it's not that dependent on exports. And, and so even though China is recovering along with Taiwan and South Korea, and we hope Singapore and a few others sooner than the West, they are not dependent on global demand. It'll be a small drag on them that they don't have much room to export, but it's not going to be a constraint, I think. That's a perfect segue to Europe, which does have some export dependence. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you about I want to ask you about it in the context of integration and the, the tug of war between you know you know globalization and, and nationalism that we were talking about earlier. Because of course we we had we're what, eight years uh, out from Europe having come to the brink of falling apart. Uh, it came back together kind of sloppily. And uh, in this moment, it seems to be uniting fairly strongly. Uh, and even the prospect that, we, that it takes a pandemic to have uh, joint euro bonds is, you know, is tragically ironic, I guess. But yeah. uh, what do you make of the future of Europe in this context? You know, it's funny. In in 2010 to 2012, which was when I was at Bank of England on the policy committee, you know, that was the worst of the European crisis, uh, and and especially the euro area crisis within Europe. And the number of the issues you raised, I'm glad you raised the magic word nationalism, the evil magic word nationalism. You know, we're, we're part of that. I mean, part of what happened in Europe was, let's call it lack of solidarity or sympathy, um, that Northern Europe, Germany, Netherlands, Finland, Austria is classified as Northern for this purpose, were very disdainful of the moral hazard that Southern Europe, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and initially Ireland was considered Southern, um, brought this in some sense on themselves, uh, the, this being the crisis of 2008, 2010. That was wholly unfair as you've talked about and we've talked about in the past. Um, but anyway, so the, the question was this time around, similar to what we said a few minutes ago, since no one can claim that this crisis was because Italy was the only one to get sick, um, should there be more solidarity? And what we've seen is the limits of the solidarity. They've ended up, as Europe does, in a muddled compromise. So the ECB, the European Central Bank, is, is doing about as well almost as the Fed in terms of providing emergency liquidity, stabilizing markets, ending the financial panic. But that only gets you so far. And so it's a half empty, half full. You mentioned that Europe seems to be coming together. My Peterson colleague, Jacob Kierkegaard, has written a piece recently arguing that, yeah, the package that the Europeans have put together beyond the European Central Bank really has some bonds, some spending for COVID response, and therefore it is a step forward. There are others of us, myself included, who are more skeptical that if not now, when? <laughs> if you're not going to give real solidarity and joint bonds now, when are you going to do it? And, and, and the joint bonds is really important. It's important politically and economically because it's sort of the one thing that keeps cropping up as the weakness of the euro area. So you see the division, the, excuse me, the wedge 
the spread between Italian and German government bonds has stayed around 200 basis points, which is a big number, especially when interest rates are so low. And that's because there is no common fiscal capacity. And the Netherlands and Germany and others have insisted that even if there are COVID bonds, they have to sort of take the form of conditional loans and not be called neutral bonds and very limited. And so you end up with this halfway house that doesn't satisfy anybody. I mean, it may satisfy the financial markets in the literal overnight sense. That there's enough money there and it certainly will help Italy and others cope. Sure. But, you know, the, the Northern Europeans say, well, we're reopening, you know, we're Denmark, we're Austria, we're already reopening because we ran it right and we had lots of reserves to pay for things. Um, so why do they get our money? Okay, it's an act of charity. We'll, we'll give you this little bit of money. And the Italians and others in the South are saying, why the hell are we staying in the Euro area or in the European Union even if in this kind of emergency we don't do anything? Right. And, and, and oh, by the way, Italy says, you know, we've run a primary surplus for the 19 the last 20 years or something. So don't talk to us about not, not running too much debt. We haven't been. So I actually am not, not as sanguine and thrilled about Europe as some of my colleagues are. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's very, that's a very good point. And where does this leave Brexit, by the way, before we, we come back to the States? Because is it on hold or does it just accelerate a hard Brexit that has no real shape or resolution? Well, again, the economic nationalism as a subset of real nationalism obviously reared its ugly and very vociferously in, in Brexit. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to talk about there, but in terms of what happens from here, you know, the, the, the government, the conservative government of Boris Johnson has done a number of U-turns, which I welcome, <laughs> um, uh, particularly in fiscal policy, um, and now potentially on the NHS, now that Boris Johnson, the National Health Service there, now that Boris Johnson has been saved by it, um, and again, I'm not being unsympathetic to him, this isn't cynical. If, if this leads to his Damascene conversion, that you know him seeing in person with his life on the line, how foreign nurses and doctors working under heart conditions in the National Health Service save lives, and that convinces him to change his mind. God love him and love God for doing that. You know, so Brexit. I mean, I, there can't be a total reversal, but there is this sort of ridiculous wing of the Eurosceptics, as they're called, who, who, who want Brexit to be implemented before year-end, even in the midst of all this. And we've already seen that because of the Brexit uncertainty, not in the sense that they don't know what's going to happen, but in the sense of the way the British government was handling it, there were three opportunities the Guardian reported for UK to join a joint buying scheme for medical supplies, uh, PPE personal protective equipment, things like that, like New York is doing with several other states in the U.S. And the U.K. blew it three times. Um, you know, so there are very tangible costs to them going ahead with the Brexit mindset and Brexit implementation right now. So coming back to the U.S. context, since uh, we're going to be stuck at home for a while now, it seems, uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. The administration and others have presented the reopening of the economy as a as a sort of a tension, like either you reopen the economy now, <clears throat> or uh, it, you know if you if you actually address the pandemic, then you risk a deeper downturn. But can you talk about how keeping the economy shut a little bit longer might actually be pro growth? Well, we know a lot from past pandemics, including the 1918 Great Flu, including the flu that happened in the 50s and elsewhere, that you can't overwhelm the economy and overwhelm the healthcare system and come out ahead. So there are two realities. The first is what everybody's been talking about, which was the critical question, which is what was the total limit on the ability of the U.S. healthcare system to deal with the number of truly sick people? And this is a question of there's a finite number of ventilators, a finite number of respiratory ICU units, but it's also a question of hospital human resources and, and you know everybody from orderlies and cleaners to nurses and doctors, uh, pharmacists, all that, but also facilities. 
Now, it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, it's looking like, thank God, that the rate of infection is much higher and the mortality rate, the seriousness of symptoms is much lower. And so as a result, we may, if the curve for the US as a whole in New York and places like that specifically is bending right now, is peaking, uh, we may have come in, in, in un, well underneath what the hospital system could handle. I mean, it's been horrible for the frontline workers. It's been a huge burden, but for reasons you've talked about, like the, the battles between states and lack of coordination on purchasing and stockpiling and all these things, it's worse than it had to be. But anyway, ultimately, we're seeing that like the emergency hospitals in Central Park and in the Javits Center may not be heavily used, just to give an example of New York City. So maybe we're through that. And that's the first constraint. So if we're not going to be overloading the hospital healthcare system, again, too soon to say for sure, but it's starting to look that way, then you can start thinking about reopening. But then it comes to a different trade-off, and this is the other basic fact, which is people look after themselves. I mean, people are not perfectly rational, sometimes they get scared, sometimes they're in denial. Um, there are great differences in that view of the disease and of how it's being implemented across the U.S., but the bottom line is if people think it's not safe to go back to work, think it's not safe to spend, think it's not safe to go to a restaurant or a store, think it's not a good idea yet to invest, whether it's a small-scale business or a large-scale investor, President Trump going saying, going out there and saying, have fun, go out, spend money, isn't going to work. And we've seen this in history. I mean, again, people initially underplace an illness, and then over time, they start to take it seriously. And so we cannot sort of force the economy open more than people believe it to be reasonable. And additionally, this shows up in economic cost. And what we've seen in history was that when you prematurely reopen the economy, um, you end up losing on balance because what happens is you end up with more deaths, more illness, more restraint, uh, more of a panic when it reemerges. And, and so you don't really gain that much back opening the economy before the health situation is under control. Now, again, in the U.S., it's very distinct by region. There are places in the South, uh, places in other parts of rural America, not that the South is entirely rural, it's not. Um, the Atlantic and other reporters have written about, you know, where there is insufficient health care, where there are problems. But the main constraint, the main reason you don't want to reopen prematurely is because it doesn't gain you anything. And what do you make? Were you surprised by the strength and robustness of the U.S. policy response? You might have expected it from the Fed, but, you know, the fiscal stimulus came together pretty rapidly. What did you make of that process and how do you see it progressing uh, as the crisis? Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, this was frankly great. I'd give it an A minus. Um, and I think a lot of people would. Um, the, the Fed's response was terrific. And that did basically put a floor under financial issues without them directly supporting the stock market or doing any direct bailouts, but just providing liquidity, providing sense. So that's been great. Um, but the fiscal package also, I think, has really been genuinely very good. I've been pleasantly surprised by some of the Trump administration officials, in particular Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, and to some degree NEC Chair Kudlow. They deserve a lot of credit. I, I wasn't in the room, to be clear. Um, but, you know, the, I've heard from many people, and it's well reported, that um, Nugent and his team worked very constructively in a substantive way, without crazy ideas, in give and take, with Pelosi and her team, with people in both houses of Congress, both parties. And the package we ended up with, first the initial version from Pelosi and Nugent together, and then what got passed, is genuinely good. I mean, just to give you a sense of benchmarks, they, they passed about 10% of GDP in stimulus. This is totally historically unprecedented. I think it's roughly the right number. We may need to add a bit more. But remember, the Obama era stimulus against the crisis, 2009-10, was about 3% of GDP over two years. And much more hard fought. And much more hard fought. You're absolutely right. There was back and forth with Congress, Pedro. There was a lot of doubt about it throughout. And it was immediately carved about. Second, as you emphasize rightly, speed. My colleague Jason Furman, who was, you know, ended up as Obama's CEA chair and who was there for the Obama packages 
in, in 2009-10 and contributed to the congressional discussions this time. I mean, he points out, right, this is done in a matter of weeks. The Obama packages took months to pass. Um, and then what I would emphasize is the content of the package is actually genuinely very good. The vast bulk of it is going directly to households or directly to small businesses. They're calling it loans to small businesses, mostly grants, um, because that's the way you disperse it. It's like Germany after World War II. The Marshall Fund plan funds were dispersed through so-called business loans, but a lot of it was grants. It's tied to employment to try to keep jobs and real estate supported in local areas. Um, and, and, you know, the Small Business Administration and the Treasury haven't gotten out everybody's checks yet. And I know that there's genuine human pain when they don't. But the scale of this effort in a matter of weeks is, is extraordinary. So, no, I think, I think they've done great. I mean, bailing out airlines is wrong. Bailing out big business is wrong. You know, there's a certain amount of fraud and waste that's always going to be there, especially in this administration and when they take away inspector generals and oversight. Um, but, you know, compared to where the package was, a lot of that even got excised. So the policy response on the economic side, again, including the Fed, I think has been great, frankly. Yeah. What's scary is the public health side, going back to where you were a minute ago on the portrayal of it being a trade-off of lockdown and the failure to coordinate among states on supplies and the denial and all these things that are well known. That's terrible. But the economic policy response, I think, has been really good. So in the spirit of uh, bipartisan love in, in a time of pandemic, uh, looking to the future and to how we kind of re-enter, we reignite re economic growth, uh, have you been thinking about any long-term ways in which you see the economy changing, in which we could use lessons learned to enhance productivity? Or even, you know, a lot of the, the stoppages have brought the earth back to life in ways that are, yeah. you know, kind of shocking how quickly it happens. And is there, is there a way that we can re-enter the, the world without, you know, with a smaller footprint, if you will? It's a great aspiration, Pedro. And, you know, it's sort of like we hope, like the famous earth picture from outer space that watching, you know, the sky suddenly clear up in the Himalayas and in Los Angeles and in Beijing be a message to people. I'd love that, but I, I, I'm not sure about that. I'd, I'd, I'd like to focus on a couple of narrower, but I think still important things. I think that in terms of changes in behavior, we already talked about seeing signs of this in China. You know, even if I'm on the relatively optimistic end about the ability of the US and the other rich countries to bounce back, uh, partly because I think the policy response has been good. Um, you know, I do think there's going to be very fundamental changes in consumer behavior. Are people going to save more? Are people going to, going to be less interested in retail? Are they going to be more risk averse? And some of this may not be bad. It's just a question of getting used to it. But some of it will reinforce what Larry Summers and others have called secular stagnation. You know, it'll reinforce a, a low returns economy, a low wage growth economy if people are more scared. And so those are fundamental trends I worry about. It's kind of a depression mentality of sorts, right? The people who grew up under depression had certain saving behaviors that they never exactly. let go. And the people in the generation behind you or two generations behind me, since I'm old, um, you know, like who came out of the 2008 crisis and then get whacked again, putting off marriage, putting off buying a home for the two thirds of Americans who do, you know, they, there could be lasting changes in behavior, some of which are okay, some of which are not. That in terms, though, more hopefully in the spirit of what you were saying about the environment, but I think more directly is the question of a, re of a welfare state. Yeah. The U.S. is on the fly making up a better unemployment system, a better automatic stabilized system, a better safety net. And here is where I think we can learn from Europe. We should learn from Europe and Australia and Canada and essentially every other rich country that is in the U.S. That jobs should not be this fragile. Connections to jobs should not be this, this loose. Um, people in who we don't have an informal sector quite the way, say, in India does or Nigeria does, but people who are in the low-wage, what economists call low-attachment to the workforce jobs, minorities, people of so-called low skill, um, you know, there has to be better provision for them. And, and the hope I would have is people see 
that it's not just during a pandemic that it's not these individuals' faults, that they just can't, in the current system, save enough. They can't self-insure. They're not going to become lazy and wasteful if, if, if you give them a decent amount of security. And that's where I hope the battle goes in the U.S., that, that these measures become a permanent change. In the that's US. a great point. And I actually, I also hope that even on, on the sort of pipeline issues that we were discussing, the way that these payments are delivered, mm -hmm. the connections between people and their government, that they become more solidified in ways that yeah. maybe the next time around, we don't have to scramble so much. Absolutely. And it's an efficiency issue. It's a political issue. I mean, there's stuff being learned. You talk about lessons being learned about how the stimulus was dispersed in 09, 10 versus now and how people perceive the role of government. I agree with you completely. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Adam. I'm going to jump into a portion of our interview called The Intersection, which is a quick, rapid-fire series of questions that we ask all of our guests, so thanks for bearing with me. You're uh, like Lipton in the actor's studio, okay. Exactly. This is a, You got it. Um, so the first one, is there one person living or dead whom you'd like to sit down for an interview with, you, you being the interviewer? And if so, who and why? Um, either Ted Williams or James, John Maynard Keynes, because they both were the best who ever lived in each of their professions. What is the book or books that have changed your view of the world and how so? And what are you reading right at the moment? I must admit rather shamefully that I'm reading very little beyond COVID and economics straight up. I mean, I saw the thing in the New York Times the other day about Joe Stiglitz is reading every literary novel and history book, but Joe Stiglitz is six standard deviations more smart than I am. I Good for Joe. I'm not yeah, there. I know, exactly. yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to catch up on my on my COVID literature myself. That's great. But what about long-term long books in your life? So particularly thinking about this week, um, thinking about the G20 and the efforts, we've tried to explain why collective action is not just some fantasy, but is, has deliverable benefits. There was a fabulous short book called The Logic of Collective Action by Mansour Olson. It came out nearly 50 years ago now, um, and it's just full of insights in how to think about this. I also, um, I, I think that the history is, is in many ways, as so many people are now saying, is the most important thing to read. Um, I think Jared Diamond's work in big picture history is sometimes sloppy, of course, and overgeneralized, but getting from him into the literature about what pestilence and large scale changes have meant for the world in the past, I think it's really important. Thinking of over the course of your career, I was wondering if there's a, a particular juncture or a person that you think of where you think things just made a big change and put you on the path that you ended up on. There were three. Um, so first was when I came out of grad school in economics. And I had a rough time in grad school. I didn't do very well. I uh, took leave for a while to work. I didn't like grad school and grad school didn't like me very much. Um, I got a job at the New York Fed and Rick Michigan, teacher of Columbia, had at that time become the executive vice president, chief economist. And he gave me an opportunity to really do good work and encourage me in a way that was incredible for my career. Similarly, uh, uh, several, a few years after that, Fred Bergston, the guy who founded with Pete Peterson, the Peterson Institute, who was the director, um, who you know, uh, he gave me the chance to come in and be a fellow and take risks and, and do writing uh, and opine like I was a big grown-up uh, at a very early stage in my career. And, and that was enormous for my opportunity in my life. So those two, I mean, there were other people and other opportunities, but those were sort of the critical junctures for me professionally. And uh, can you think of a roadblock or like, you know, uh, failure or something that happened that like that, that set you straight or that, that, that taught you a lesson? Again, I'll, I'll pick two. Um, one was just simply really flaming out in my first couple of years of grad school. And, and having to think hard about why I was doing that. Um, I mean, again, it's not tragedy, but it's very emotional and, and burdensome at the time when you're doing that. And there are people, I mean, one of my college, one of my grad school classmates is Michael Kramer, who won the Nobel Prize this year, and who is uh, 
lovely human being in addition to being a fantastic scholar and you know and so you're surrounded by you don't know 50 percent of economics uh candidates drop out of their phd program i believe it's something like that yeah it's and it's not a very friendly welcoming profession again i wasn't a dentist i was treated perfectly fine but you know there's been a lot of documentation on how women people of color anybody who sort of doesn't come from the more privileged background that i did gets even worse abuse so you know, so grad school was very hard for me, and it, it and it, it taught me to be a little more humble, to be a little more risk taking. But ultimately, in the end, and this was borne out by things that I wrote about and faced in the crisis a, a dozen years ago, a lot of the stuff that I thought was just fundamentally wrong, either ideologically or, or too academic in grad school, turns out I was right. I wasn't smart enough to know how to write them and, and point them out in a persuasive way at the time, but I was right about some of those things that proved to be very wrong. Um, the other issue was that in 2003, I had a neck injury, which led to a stroke. And um, I lost part of my vision. Uh, luckily, I'm basically healthy now, except for being fat. But, you know. I had no idea. I didn't yeah. know Well, so, I mean, I, I might have been smarter before that happened. Um, and so, you know, and I, and. And it took me, you know, a good six months, not of rehab, but just sort of getting myself back together in psychology. And my wife was wonderful. Um, But anyway, but so just like for many people, it gives you, and that was in my early 30s. And so it gives you a sense of vulnerability and fragility of life that I was already somewhat cognizant of because my father had been very ill a lot of my childhood. But it reinforce it. And again, like with grad school, though, it, it, I came out the other side. I was fortunate enough to live. It's now 16 plus years later, and I'm still okay. So that, again, gives you a sense of both humility and gratitude, but also the sense that, okay, this too shall pass. I can survive. So sorry to go a bit heavy, but those... Not are- at all. That's a, Actually, that's a wonderful way to end, because I think that uh, that's not... Uh, you, know, you, you didn't just make it 16 years past, you know, you thrive and you, you accomplished so much, you, you know, you became a, a, a global central banker and you run a fantastic think tank and, and you still, you know, you have all the, this intellect to offer us and our viewers. So thank you so much for joining. Very generous, my friend. Thank you for having me. And thank you for continuing to be a voice for progressive, but honest, real values in the economic debate. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo@realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.